Today's episode is sponsored by Wondery's new podcast, Death of a Starlet. I know that my listeners love true crime, and today I'm going to tell you about Death of a Starlet, Wondery's newest miniseries about Playboy Playmate of the Year, Dorothy Stratton, a series I think just might be your next obsession. In August of 1980, Dorothy Stratton was found dead in the home of her estranged husband, shot in the face at close range. She was just 20 years old, the girl next door with a shy smile and whispery voice who didn't know her own beauty. But Hugh Hefner did. To him, she was his next Marilyn Monroe. To famed Hollywood director Peter Bogdanovich, she was his dream starlet. And to her husband, Paul Snyder, she was his meal ticket to fortune and fame. These three ambitious men needed her. One of them murdered her. I'm about to play you a brief clip from the show, but while you're listening, be sure to subscribe to Death of a Starlet on Apple Podcast, Spotify, or if you want to binge all six episodes right now, join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app. The link is in the show notes. Wondery, feel the story. Death of a Starlet by Hollywood and Crime contains depictions of violence and strong language. Please be advised. Thursday, August 14th, 1980, 11 p.m. Private detective Mark Goldstein sits alone in his car staring at a nondescript two-story house on a quiet street in West Los Angeles. The guy who lives in the house hired him to tail his wife. She's having an affair. Passing headlights reflect off the windshield and then fade away. Goldstein unrolls the window and a curl of cigarette smoke spirals into the night. He squints at the two cars in front of the house. They've been parked there since noon. The woman he's looking for must be in there, but what are they doing inside? That's the question Goldstein has been asking himself all day. The two roommates got back a few hours ago, and it's been completely quiet since then. At 11.30 p.m., Goldstein decides to do something he rarely does. Inside the house, Steve Kushner and his roommate Patty are sprawled out on opposite ends of the couch when they hear the phone ring. Patty answers, then passes it to Steve. Uh, Steve Kushner here. Steve doesn't know the caller is sitting in a car just outside the house. Uh, Kushner, it's Mark Goldstein. I need to speak to Paul. Is he there? Uh, Sorry, I haven't seen him all day. He's got to be in there. I'm looking at his car. Can you check? Kushner sighs, grabs his beer, and walks downstairs to Paul's bedroom. He doesn't come down here often. Paul Snyder likes his privacy, and lately Paul's been particularly moody. Kushner feels along the hallway for the light switch and flips it on. The door is closed. He presses his ear to the door. Nothing. Paul? You in there? There's a guy on the phone says he needs to talk to you. It's quiet. Paul? All right, I'm coming in. It takes a moment for his eyes to adjust. When they do, he's not sure what he's looking at. There's blood everywhere. On the wall. On the floor. Krishna's eyes open wide. There are two dead bodies 
both of them nude. Is that Paul? The face is so mangled he can't tell, and there's a woman lying across the corner of the bed. Her head is almost unrecognizable through the gore. Then he sees the long blonde hair. Oh, God. He turns and bumps into Patty. Jesus, don't, don't, don't go in there. Fifteen minutes later, Private Detective Mark Goldstein stands in the living room, the phone cradled in the crook of his shoulder while he smokes. Kushner sits on the couch with his head in his hands. The other roommate, Patty, is curled up in an armchair, staring at the TV with vacant eyes. The police are on their way. Goldstein is now waiting to speak to someone else who needs to know what's happened. Finally, he hears the man's voice on the other end. He takes a breath. Mr. Hefner? It's Mark Goldstein. I'm a private detective. I've been working for Paul Snyder. Uh, listen, I'm sorry to have to tell you this, Mr. Hefner. I'm really sorry. It's about one of your playmates, Dorothy Stratton. When he's done speaking, there's a long pause. Then the line goes dead. Less than 12 hours later, what Goldstein tells Hugh Hefner will be all over the news. Playboy Magazine's 1980 Playmate of the Year has been found shot to death. What nobody knows yet is why. There were two more murders 15 miles away. When police arrived, they found the telephones and electricity lines. We have a weird homicide. A scene described by one investigator as reminiscent of a weird... Morning. Cup of murder. When a celebrity dies, a world mourns. We may not know that person in real life, but they were undoubtedly there through a hard time. Whether it be a song that got you through a breakup, a movie that made you laugh when you needed it most, or a performance that touched you and made you feel understood. On December 8th, 2004, a musician was killed performing on stage and the world of metal would never be the same. So if you like your coffee hot but your bones chilled, sit back and start your day with a morning cup of murder. Daryl Lance Abbott, or as most people knew him, Dimebag Daryl, was the co-founder and guitarist of the heavy metal band Pantera. Together, the band became one of the 90s most uncompromising and the most successful of its time. They made music together for 18 years, sold more than 7 million records, and had a handful of top 10 hits. Then, much to the shock and dismay of their fans, the band had a volatile split in 2003 that resulted in a new band called Damage Plan, formed by Dimebag Daryl and his younger brother and drummer for Pantera, Vinnie Paul. Many were upset that Pantera met their demise. Blame was placed on different members and tempers flared. But one man in Marysville, Ohio, seemed to be taking it the hardest. His name was Nathan Miles Gale, and he was ready to take his anger out on the man he felt was responsible for the band's split. He started to become an issue in April of 2004 when Damage Plan was performing at a nightclub in Cincinnati. Nathan, unarmed, jumped onto the stage during their set and refused to leave the stage. He wrestled with security, knocked over a lighting rig, and left the venue having caused $2,000 worth of damage. 
the band declined to press charges as they did not want to have to interrupt their touring to return for court hearings. Nathan was let go and left angrier than before. Fast forward eight months, and on December 8th of 2004, the band was back in Ohio and playing at the El Rosa Villa nightclub in Columbus. About 250 people filed into the venue to hear the new band, but as the openers came out and performed, that same man who ran on the stage the last Ohio performance, 25-year-old Nathan Gale, was pacing outside of the club. A passerby asked why he wasn't coming into the venue, to which he responded that he didn't want to, quote, see shitty local bands and was going to wait for Damage Plan to perform. Believing he was simply a loiterer with no ticket, an employee asked him to leave. But as Damage Plan took the stage at around 10.15 p.m., Nathan scaled the six-foot fence and entered through a side door. As the band started their set, hitting the first handful of chords in Breathing New Life, Nathan Gale once again rushed onto the stage. But this time, he pulled out his 9mm semi-automatic pistol, moved straight to Dimebag, and shot him four times at point-blank range. One in the cheek, another in the ear, the back of the head, and his hand. As the crowd looked on, many assumed that this was just a new, morbid level of performance. That this was all an act. Many began to cheer and pump their fists in approval. It wasn't until security started to get involved that everyone realized just how serious the situation was. Damage Plan's head of security, Jeffrey Mayhem Thomas, tackled Nathan, but was fatally shot in the struggle. A fan named Nathan Bray ran onto the stage and attempted to help, but was shot dead. As was Aaron Hulk, an employee of the club who tried to disarm the shooter. John Cat Brooks, Damage Plan's guitar tech, attempted to subdue Nathan Gale, but was shot in the hand and leg before being taken as hostage. The club had, within a matter of minutes, gone from a group of people sharing in a musical experience to a group of people sharing in a traumatic event. Within three minutes of getting the dispatch call, police officer James Nigmeyer entered the club from behind the stage, crept up behind the shooter, and shot him in the head. When Nathan's body hit the ground, he still had another 30 rounds of ammunition on his person. And if the speed of his attack was any indication, there was a solid chance he would have used it to take in a number of other lives. With the shooter incapacitated, fans in the crowd with medical experience rushed to aid the injured. One performed CPR on Dimebag until paramedics arrived where, at just 38 years old, he was pronounced dead as was 40-year-old Jeffrey Thompson and 29-year-old Aaron Hulk. Nathan Bray, just 23 years old, was pronounced dead at Riverside Methodist Hospital, while the two other men who were shot were able to recover from their injuries. So, who was Nathan Gale, and what did he have against Dimebag Daryl? Nathan was born in Marysville, Ohio, on September 11, 1979. He was considered a decent guy, but after his graduation in 1998, developed a pretty serious drug addiction. He felt he was being watched and developed a hairpin trigger that got him into the violent altercation that got him kicked out of his mother's home and forced him into homelessness. He was only allowed to come home if he agreed to go to rehab. In February of 2002, Nathan enlisted in the United States Marine Corps, and I'm sure those close to him saw this as an opportunity for rehabilitation. His family was proud of his military service and believed it saved him from the downward spiral he was heading towards. As a Christmas present that year, his proud mother gifted him with the gun that he would later use to take the lives of four men. 
But for reasons undisclosed by the Marine Corps, Nathan was discharged in October of 2003, though sources would later say it was due to a diagnosis of paranoid schizophrenia. Veterans Affairs secured him a job as a mechanic post-discharge, but pretty quickly, things started to head in a bad direction for Nathan. Unmedicated, Nathan began telling his friends that the band Pantera, who he had been a hardcore fan of since he was a teenager, stole his lyrics, and that now they were trying to steal his identity altogether. A once semi-professional football player, Nathan would listen to the band before games to get himself in the proper headspace, and his obsession continued after the band's breakup in 2003. He even claimed that he planned to sue the band for their theft. The friends that would later report this information also said that they distanced themselves from Nathan prior to the shooting because of his strange behavior, claiming he would often get angry over the smallest thing and began interacting with an imaginary dog. When news of the shooting got out, police knew exactly who Nathan Gale was. He had a bit of a criminal record, but none of the crimes were violent ones. Things like trespassing, sleeping in public parks, and petty theft from a few employers. Nothing quite like this. When they went to search his apartment post-mortem, they found a series of handwritten notes, one of which stated, You'll see come alive. I'll take your life and make it mine. This is my life. I'm gone. Get me. Rumors swirled following the shooting. Many claimed that as he shot Dimebag Daryl, Nathan yelled out something about him breaking up the band, but these statements were never corroborated by those there the night of the shooting. Some believe that an offhanded comment by Pantera frontman stating that Dimebag, quote, deserves to be beaten severely was the trigger that set off Nathan Gale. But in the end, the one person who could give the necessary answers is long gone. In May of 2005, James Nigmeyer was cleared of any wrongdoing and awarded for his bravery with the Distinguished Law Enforcement Valor Award and named Law Enforcement Officer of the Year. Nathan's own mother commended him on how many lives he saved by ending her son's life. He retired three years after the shooting, being diagnosed with PTSD, and was transferred to a different division before leaving the force altogether. Dimebag Daryl's death, while devastating to friends, family, and fans, also highlighted the need for security at music venues. The stage went from a place where people could climb up and stage dive off of to a place off-limits to everyone except for the musicians themselves. No longer were fans viewed as welcome participants. The murder of Christina Grimmie in 2016 further solidified the need for safety. Dimebag Daryl was buried in true rock star form. In his Kiss casket, donated by Gene Simmons himself, Eddie Van Halen left his customized, hand-taped, trademark bumblebee guitar to be buried alongside him, saying, Dime was an original, and only an original deserves the original. When his brother Vinnie Paul died in 2018, he was buried next to Daryl and their mother in matching kiss caskets. Thank you for joining me in my morning cup of murder. Please join me again tomorrow to hear what terrible thing happened on December 9th. Don't forget to rate and subscribe and let me know how you like it. If you want to help support the podcast, there's always Patreon or just sharing it with your true crime obsessed friends. And remember, stay safe. Targeted True Crime Podcast. We tell stories of those who were targeted by abuse and investigate cases of family violence using academic research to interpret the events. 
I think we need to stop making family violence a secret. Let's use our stories to help heal and provoke change. Season four features the case of Marsha Brantley, a woman who disappeared in 2009, but was not reported missing until six months later. With new interviews, we'll explore the possibility that Marsha's husband had isolated her through coercive control from family and friends. Targeted True Crime Podcast. Peace, my friends. Peace.